Man, it's good to worship with you guys. Thank you. Good to ascribe worth to God. Uh, my name's Keith. I get the great privilege of opening God's Word with you in Hebrews 5. Uh, Brent is off getting a doctorate. Um, you know, got a free weekend. I guess, well, maybe he's been working at it for years. So um, you'll have to celebrate with him when he returns. But we are in week two of a series in Hebrews. And uh, last week, if you were here, you might remember that we talked about how uh, Jesus is the perfect prophet, really mainly out of Hebrews 1. We'll be in Hebrews 5. But first, uh, just, a, just a touch of, of context. Uh, if you're going to read a letter, it really helps to know who the letter is to, right? And so um, uh, I have a sort of a funny story. So in my day job, I'm a professor. And last fall, somebody brought an Albert Einstein letter in and asked us to understand it. It had a letter on the front and then some math or physics on the back. And we're trying to figure out this letter. Um, and and it's, it's sort of interesting. It's in German, but we got it translated. And it's talking about the rival in the letter and such and so. And so we're asking more and more people, finally asking people in Germany off to Caltech. There's a Caltech professor who specializes in Albert Einstein history and tells us, OK, this, this letter was actually written to a mistress of Albert Einstein. And so it adds a whole new meaning to what rivalry means, right? This has nothing to do with physics. Um, <laughs> OK, yeah, so when we give a letter, the letter to the Hebrews, it's really important that you, you not think, hey, this was written to my neighbor Joe. This was written to the Hebrews, to the Israelite people in the first century. And so there would be things that would be, I mean, honestly, obvious to a Hebrew five-year-old that might not be obvious to you or me. And so as we're reading this, I think we just need to keep in mind who it's written to. And uh, certainly as we read this together, you'll, you'll see that there are various pieces of it that are pretty subtle, okay? So uh, let's back up just a touch. Our main text is going to be Hebrew 5, 1 through 10. But let's go back three verses before Hebrews 5 starts. Um, in, the, in the Pew Bible, it's page 1002. Um, let's see, 1002, 1003 is where you want to be starting with uh, Hebrews 4.14, and I think we'll have it up here. Ah, only on this side. Okay, since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. That's the confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is ob obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, 
but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, other than from discovering that uh, Melchizedek's probably the name of your next-born son, uh, you know, you may see, hey, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of subtlety. There's a lot going on here. You might not talk to your neighbors much about um, the, the line of Aaron. Well, but that's something that every Hebrew would be familiar with. And so I think it's only appropriate to sort of back up and sort of say, well, what would they have understood a priest to be? So uh, last week we talked about... Um, a prophet. A prophet is one who speaks to people on behalf of God. And a priest is sort of the opposite of that. A priest is a go-between, between man and God. And, and you might say, I, I mean, in our society, to some extent, that might strike you as a little weird. You know, I, it's interesting to ask people, you know, so how do you see God? And a fairly common way of seeing God is something like, well, you know, I see God as, as a, a white-haired grandfather, kind of a polo shirt, but he's really warm and welcoming. And, and there are some aspects there that are, that are actually accurate, describing God, you know, certainly he's, he's called the ancient of days, he's timeless, and, and, and he does want all to come to him. But that really isn't the image that a Hebrew, the person reading this letter, would have had of God Almighty. I was, I was enjoying worshiping to the song Yahweh, Yahweh to start with, and thinking a first century Hebrew would not have dared to speak that name out loud because of the holiness of God. So sort of the kind of the right picture you might have for how they saw God uh, if you're familiar, if you've ever read the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah had a vision of God in chapter 6. And he said, I saw the Lord seated on his throne and the train of his robe filled the heavens. And Isaiah is overwhelmed by the majesty, by the power of God. And he, and he falls down and he says, woe to me, I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. God didn't say anything to him. It wasn't that God accused him of anything. He saw how good, how righteous, how holy, how powerful God was. And he just said, I am nothing like that. I am absolutely nothing like God. What am I going to do? I am so far from that. And in Isaiah, what happens is a go-between comes to Isaiah. It's an angel. And the angel reaches out on behalf of God to Isaiah. And that picture comes up again and again in the Bible. Uh, in Exodus, you know, Moses leads God's people out of Egypt. 
and they're in the desert at the base of Mount Sinai, and God reveals himself to the people, and you know what the people say? Oh, no! We, we, are, we don't know how to handle God being this powerful, this righteous near us. Moses, could you talk to God and then tell us what he said? That's what they ask, you know? We need a little space between us and God. And so what a priest was, and this would have just been understood in that culture, a priest was one who was a go-between, between man and God. And what would you want with the go-between? You would want somebody who was able to sort of sympathize with your perspective, right? Able to identify with human weakness. But then at the same time, a, a go-between would be pretty lousy if they couldn't talk to the other party, right? So they need to be qualified. That angel in Isaiah was actually qualified somehow to interact with God in a way that we as broken humans aren't. Well, and then there's sort of a final aspect. A priest is supposed to help us know how to relate to an all-powerful God. And so whether that's sacrifices, whether that's worship, whether that's ascribing worth, how do I, how do I even pray to an all-powerful God? That's the job of a priest. And uh, in the first century, there would have been hundreds or perhaps thousands of priests. There was a temple in Jerusalem. Uh, the priests would have prayed. They would have offered sacrifices in the front part of that temple that was called the holy place. This was a particular place set aside to offer sacrifices to God. But there was another place in the temple called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. And one man got to go there once a year on the Day of Atonement, uh, their most holy day, Yom Kippur. That was the high priest. So they recognized even the, the priests, you know, they're... <laughs> they're they're the best you got. They're the best go between you got. But, but God has put his special presence in this place. And there's one. The, the high priest is invited into God's presence once a year. And they took this seriously enough. They would actually literally tie a rope around his ankle before he went in once a year to offer sacrifices. Because if he died in the presence of God, I'm not going to go in there and get him, <laughs> right? I mean, this is how seriously they took the holiness of God and the fact that I am not like God, okay? And so when, when the author of Hebrews is writing about Jesus being a great high priest, this is, this is just the understanding that from their culture they would have understood we need a go-between. We need someone to reach out to God on our behalf. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through the text. I'm going to start again in uh, Hebrews 5.1. But uh, Hebrews comes back to this theme again and again. So I'm going to, we're going to sort of linearly go through chapter 5, but I'm going to bring in uh, it references high priest in chapter 2, in chapter 4, in chapter 7. And so since they wouldn't let me make the sermon five hours, we'll just go through the ten verses and I'll bring in the other texts that... Um, that come to bear. Okay, so the author is sort of reminding the Hebrews what a high priest is like. So he's talking about a high priest. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation 
to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So you see, last week we were talking about Jesus being this perfect prophet. A prophet was one who acted on behalf of God to men, right? This is what God says. A priest is one who acts on behalf of men, represents us to an almighty God. And the, the point that the author is really making is, you, you know, you have this in your culture, but Jesus is better. In fact, Jesus is the better go-between, okay? And, and he's making this point, and I want to I just bring up a verse that I've already read to you. It's uh, verse 14 of chapter 4. It says, since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So, yeah, I mean, maybe this priest, maybe he could get a, a little closer to God, but do you recognize that Jesus came from heaven, right? You have a go-between. Yeah, if you're going to get an ambassador between you and a foreign country, are you going to get somebody who, like, read a lot about it or somebody who's been there? Are you going to get somebody who, like, you know, maybe can get partway there, or are you going to get someone who has entered heaven itself and has access to God? Because God the Father actually sent God the Son, Jesus, to be our access. So you can see Jesus is this better go-between, and the author continues to unpack it. That's verse 1. We'll go on to verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. This is, this is, again, talking about what a high priest's role is. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset by weakness. This, this human high priest can be sympathetic with us. Uh, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. So the high priest that the Hebrews would have known goes into the Holy of Holies, but only after repenting of his own sin. And I, I imagine you can sort of get where the author is going, where I'm going with this. Jesus is the better representative of human weakness. Can you see that Jesus came, he was born on earth as a human, uh, scripture says he was tempted in every way. If you, if you look, and it's convenient that it's all, it's all on one page here in the, in the Pew Bible, in verse 15 of chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus has sympathized with this. This is actually the third time he's mentioned it. He mentions it before this in chapter 2. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be tired, to be irritated by people. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted by sin. And yet, he is better able to represent us because he's not distracted by his own sin. He doesn't have to start out by repenting. And he's not distracted by the lie of sin. Ultimately, sin is a lie. 
I'm convinced that if you and I could see as God sees, we would want what God wants. I think often we are stuck in the perspective of a four-year-old. You know, a four-year-old sees the cookie and sees the cookie and sees the cookie and mama's not given the cookie. You know, and it's sort of like, I, I, I'm thinking cookie. I'm thinking what I want. And, and honestly, I think we live in a society that is consumed with that, a society that says, you know, if you feel a longing, if you, have, if you have an urge, particularly if you feel like it's a genuine urge, well, the kid's hungry. Cookies taste good, right? <laughs> then, then you need to satisfy that. Then you're justified in satisfying that. And yet, God gives us restraint. He gives us direction for our good because he loves us. And Jesus, being perfect, experienced temptation. He experienced hunger and weakness. And he was never sucked into the lie that we are. The lie that somehow our, our desires, our flesh, would, would be telling us more truthfully than God what is actually good. God always held, God the Son, Jesus, always held on to the truth that the instructions we have are for our good. They are lovingly pointing us to a big picture. It may include that cookie sometime down the road. It may not. But God's ways are good. God's ways are protection. And we have a high priest who experienced the weakness that we, we experience. We can feel close to Jesus in times of suffering, in times of temptation. We don't have to feel far from God when, when we feel weak, when we feel messed up when we realize we're broken. And we have a model of what it is to hang on to the truth in those times. But that's not all we have. We don't just have somebody who's really able to sympathize exceedingly well with us. We also have somebody who went the other direction. So going on in the text, no one takes this honor on himself. Remember, this is the honor of being a high priest. But only when, God, when called by God, just as Aaron was. So the author's reminding the Hebrews and, and teaching us. You know, it's not like somebody woke up in the morning and they said, Guy, I've had a rough life, but I want to help some people out, so I'll show them how to get to God. Um, the high priest was somebody appointed by God. Aaron was Moses' brother, and so when God led his people out of Egypt... He appointed Aaron, and he said, your offspring also will be priests. You will be the people, not because you are better, but because I have chosen you to represent me to these people and to represent Israel to me. Okay? That's how it works. It's not something we pick. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. But he was appointed by God the Father, who said to him, who said to Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And, and here again, I, I feel like I have to apologize a number of times because we're so ignorant. You probably didn't grow up 
knowing the first one, Psalm 2, and the last one, Psalm 10. So, sorry, Psalm 110. But that's something that probably most Hebrew teenagers would have known. They would have used the Psalms for worship, and they, so they sort of would have been familiar with the context. Well, luckily, we, we didn't grow up in the Hebrew synagogue, but we have Google. So it's, you know, 50, half of one, six of no, um, so, but, but we need to take time to really unpack sort of what's, what's being said here. Um, Psalm 2 has this line where, and, and the amazing thing is, this is said in the Hebrew scripture before they even understood clearly that the Messiah would be fully God and that God the Father would send him. And yet it's in their scriptures. God the Father is saying, you are my son. And that's, that's an allusion to uh, what God said to David. When David, uh, this is actually in 2 Samuel, when David wanted to build a temple to God, David wanted to build a temple, a house for God. And so he was, he was planning to do that in Jerusalem, but God sent the prophet Nathan to him and said, I don't need a house for you to build. In fact, I'll build a house, a dynasty for you. And I will call your offspring, the kings of Israel, I will call them son. Not saying somehow, this isn't saying that Jesus somehow wasn't and then got born, or saying that he wasn't truly God and then he became God, but I will appoint you just like David was appointed a king of Israel, just like his sons were adopted by God, Jesus is appointed to the role of being an ambassador. And this actually spills off into next week. Remember, we're talking, we talked last week about Jesus being the perfect prophet. This week, the perfect priest. And next week, we'll talk about Jesus being the perfect king. But God appointed Jesus. He said, you are to go, you are to put on flesh, and you are to be the go-between. You are to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Aaron was a great-great-great-grandson of Abraham. He was an Israelite, and he was appointed to be a go-between for Israel, between Israel and God. But Melchizedek was much earlier. Melchizedek was the priest that Abraham went to. He was not of Israel, and he didn't only minister to Israel. This is a priest who ministers not only to Israel, but also to those outside of Israel. That's good news for those of us that aren't Israelites. Jesus is a high priest not just to Israel, but to all people. He's in the order of Melchizedek, and it and it says in Hebrews 7, it talks almost the whole chapter about the, the legacy of being a part of Melchizedek, which is outside of time, which is outside of the natural lineage of the priesthood. This is a priesthood forever. Why? One, because God is eternal. Jesus lives forever to intercede for us. But also because Jesus paid once and for all. He took that journey perfectly, once and for all, to the king. Jesus is better qualified to relate to God. 
he is the one that is God himself and was sent by God the Father to be our advocate, to be our go-between. So, you know, what's, what's missing? I mean, this, this seems like a pretty perfect picture. He's the go-between. He perfectly can sympathize with us. He can perfectly relate to God because he is God. Well, but the author keeps going, and this is, this is that twist. And I would encourage you, I, I have found this, this next section, starting in verse 7, challenging. But I think something that makes, makes our church unique is that we explicitly, like if you, if you look on the doors, if you look on the mission statement, we talk about word, worship, service, and family. And we, we start with the word. We believe that God's word is living and active, not only meaning that it's not wrong, not only meaning that it's inerrant, but also meaning that, that it's profoundly useful. That we run across something like this, and it may be difficult to understand, but that the Lord has given this, not only as a gift to the Hebrews, but as a gift to me and to you. And so I'd encourage you, you know, I'm honestly, and I'm an unseminary-trained guy, just like most of you. You know, I don't have seminary training, but I have the gift of God's Word. And he encourages us, he invites us, he gives us this community to unpack God's word and to look at things that might be surprising and wonderful. So here's what it says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. So Jesus was made flesh and he prayed. He prayed earnestly, he prayed Fervently, he prayed with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. Now, we have many records of Jesus uh, praying earnestly in the Bible. But there's one time, I think, that the author is bringing out when Jesus was praying about his death. And that's the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember the night Jesus was betrayed. He went into a garden with his disciples and he became really sad and he prayed and he prayed and he got down on his knees and he was sweating almost like drops of blood and he said, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. He knew that he would suffer an excruciating death. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In the days of Jesus' flesh, he cried out, honestly to the only one who could save him from death. And what the author says is, Jesus was heard because of his reverence. In some translations, reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The father heard Jesus saying, if there's another way, let's take that. And he said, there is no other way. Because we had a perfect go-between, but we also needed a perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus learned obedience. He put into practice right relationship to God by giving his very life so that he could not only be the high priest, the go-between, but he could be the sacrifice. He could be the offering, the atonement for that we needed to make us right with God. And in verse 9, you can see, and being made perfect. Not that Jesus was sinful beforehand, but Jesus needed a perfect offering to be the perfect high priest. 
a high priest represents man to God. Now, through his death, he is the perfect high priest. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so, you can see that Jesus is the better model, the perfect model of how we relate to God. He shows us what submission and trust looks like. He's on his knees being honest to God, saying, God, this is going to hurt. And God heard him. And the, the irony is, you might look at that and you might say, God, did he just say no? God said what he so often says to us. He said, not yet. Jesus died. Jesus suffered. Jesus was obedient all the way to death. But was he a captive to death? Was he delivered from death? Absolutely. He became obedient to death, and so therefore, God raised him from the dead and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He shows us perfect submission. He invites us into the relationship that he has with the Father. Jesus calls us friends. And he says, you should relate in this level of trust that we might offer ourselves as living sacrifices, just as Jesus did, to the one who is trustworthy. Because God has proven himself faithful. God has proven himself faithful to send Jesus to be that perfect high priest. Now, our tradition has been sort of to wrap up with next steps. So that's what I titled this. So how then do we respond? How then can, can I respond to a righteous God, a holy God that's unapproachable except that he sent a perfect go-between that sacrificed on my behalf? Well, the first thing is to respond in thanks. Respond with thanksgiving. This is what it says um, in 4.15. Uh, sorry, in 4.16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Give thanks. You have someone that loved you so much they would die to restore your relationship to God. But then there's a second piece, and I think this is every bit as important. Uh, let me read you a scripture from 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2.9. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Did you hear that? A royal priesthood. You are. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The punchline here is that Jesus is the high priest, but you and I are invited to be priests. You and I are invited to be the go-between for a world that does not know our glorious God. 
You and I are able uniquely to sympathize with the weakness, with the brokenness, with human frailty. And heaven help us if we forget what it is to live in brokenness. But we don't still live in brokenness. We have been adopted. If you belong to the Lord, you are adopted, you are chosen as a son, you are no longer an orphan. And you have access to the Father. You approach the throne of grace with confidence. And you are invited to invite others, to invite many, because we are appointed as priests. We are appointed as representatives who have the privilege of saying, here is how you relate to a good God. Let me help you come near to a God that loves you, that sacrificed for you. And we have the opportunity to, as Christians, as followers of Christ, to represent God, even as Christ modeled to us, to a world that desperately needs to know a holy and loving God. Let's praise him in prayer and then continue to praise him in our song. Oh God, you are so good. You've given us your word. And I pray that you would continue to make it living and active in our hearts to teach us more and more about the beauty, the mystery of your son coming, truly perfect and yet able to sympathize with us. I pray that you would help us to learn through his example, to learn through your spirit within us, and I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to live obedient, passionate lives that image God to a world that desperately needs to know you. We pray it in your son Jesus' name. Amen.